Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Andrew Roberts, the distinguished biographer. We're talking to Andrew about his new book, George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch, published in the United States under the title, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. Andrew, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Crawford. It's very good to be back. I um, enjoyed it very much the last time. Well, we're delighted to have you back. We spoke to you last time about your book, Leadership and War, published with Alan Lane, of course, as well. You're one of our leading biographers. You've got a long list of magisterial publications, all of them, I think, prize-winning titles. What is it draws you to biography? Why do you find biography such a compelling medium to work in? I, I'm not just a biographer. I have uh, written a few um, books, the history of the Second World War, and, and some others. But I, you're right. I I do enjoy that medium. I love the uh, way in which a personality changes, um, the way in which uh, great events affect the uh, individual. I like uh, looking at the whole question of you know, with T. S. Eliot talking about dark impersonal forces in history, and other people believing in the great man view of history. Um, the people that I tend to choose uh, are towards the latter end of that. You know, they seem to be people who actually do have an effect on uh, history. And uh, so I like to to see, you know, what might have been if they if they hadn't been there, as it were. Although I never allow that to get into my books, obviously. It's part of the fascination and the fun of it. Now, if we think about the last number of titles you produced, obviously today, George III, um, previously Leadership and War, previously Churchill, there's almost a sense in which you, through these projects in recent years, have been walking back in time. But what's the intellectual journey of the author that these titles represent? I, again, I'm not sure that's wholly true because I, I did write a biography of Napoleon in 2014. Um, and in fact, it was whilst I was doing that that it sparked my interest in George III um, because, of course, they overlapped a, a, a good deal. And... Um, uh, so I don't think I'd ever really want to go back much beyond um, the uh, the 18th century. I got the handwriting is so difficult apart from anything else. When you get into into Queen Elizabeth the first, you know, it's a Tudor and Stuart handwriting. It's all so fiddly, uh, let alone um, reading the original documents of medieval um, uh, works. I'm I'm, I'm not uh, expert in, uh, enough for that. Um, and also, I don't really like doing anybody who's um, still alive. I think that you get into all sorts of um, of problems there. I was once asked to write the biography of Henry Kissinger, and I think that that would... Uh, I have huge admiration for Neil Ferguson, my friend who's doing it, because um, I know that actually that would be beyond me. I, I don't... Uh, I want people to be solidly dead who I can therefore lie if I want to. <laughs> well, you've chosen a, a subject who is very safely deceased, but one of the interesting things about George is that 
there has been a new tranche of archive material become available to you as a biographer, hasn't there? What did yes, that, what yes. did that add to the way you told the story? Yes, we're very lucky indeed that Her Majesty the Queen, since uh, 2015, has allowed the uh, the papers of George III, over 100,000 pages of it, to go um, online, which uh, has been done by the wonderful Georgian Papers Programme at uh, King's College London. And what this does, really, is to uh, to show us that almost everything that we know about George III is completely wrong. We think that he died mad with uh, porphyria, that his obstinacy lost in the colonies, that he ruled as well as reigns, that he had this authoritarian side, which is so brilliantly lampooned in Hamilton the musical. Uh, and all of this is, is completely wrong. So what it does is to allow us to get into the mind of a man who has been incredibly badly misunderstood and misrepresented. I mentioned earlier about libel. Um, he has been libeled uh, so abominably over the years. And, uh, and I think that now, especially now that we've lost the stigma that attaches to mental illness, um, it's a good time to, um, to reappraise him. Mm. What's in this archive? 100,000 papers, but what, what, what kinds of papers are they? Oh, they're wonderful. They are, not only are they his um, his correspondence, of course, but also um, one of the most interesting things are the essays that he wrote when he was Prince of Wales, when the Earl of Bute, um, later to become his prime minister, um, was teaching him essentially uh, about the enlightened thoughts that people considered necessary to be a great uh, king. And so you find in these um, in these documents, for example. Um, a long essay, 200-page essay, on uh, Montesquieu's um, essays on the spirit of the laws. And um, there is a denunciation of slavery, which um, which people haven't brought out in previous uh, books. But it's as plain as day. Uh, he did, as, as um, Prince of Wales, think that it was ludicrous and uh, an absurd system, uh, as well as being morally uh, abhorrent. And so, you know, here you have a somebody who, of course, ultimately signed the um, legislation that got rid of the um, slave trade, um, opposing it. He didn't um, do very much about it when he was king, but equally, he um, he didn't own any slaves himself, never bought or sold any, um, and so on. So you have this uh, this dichotomy, really, obviously, with the. Uh, Founders, some 41 out of the 56 signatories of the Declaration of Independence were slave owners at some stages in their lives. Um, and this, this new stuff that the Queen has put out shows that at least emotionally and ideologically and morally, uh, George III did not support it. And we've got an illustration, one of the beautiful illustrations in the book is, is, a, is a sample of that essay from 1750 uh, when um, he is, he, he's working on that kind of material. Um, That's right. Well, sometime in the 1750s, it, we can't unfortunately date it even from where it was placed within the papers. But the the, um, the Royal Archives are fantastic. They do a very good uh, job of, of this, as you can imagine. And um, and also, thanks for mentioning the illustrations, because aren't they beautiful? They are the stunning. end papers are so good. You know, the publishers have done an absolutely first class job with this. Yeah, the production values of this are really exceptional. Now, um, you, you mentioned there... Um, the George's formation as Prince of Wales under the tutorship of the Earl of Bute. I suppose one of the other 
very important relationships in his early years was that with his grandfather, George II. And one of the really quite remarkable sentences that you drop into the book from time to time is this one on page 19. The key new relationship in British politics, that between George II and his grandson and heir apparent, started off with the prince subjected to the stench of his father's rotting corpse thanks to his grandfather's neglect. How do you describe in the book the, the, the quite strange relationship that exists at court at this time? Well, it is extraordinary, isn't it, how the Hanoverians all seem to hate one another. Um, George III didn't hate his own father, Frederick, Prince of Wales, who also loved him. But uh, but otherwise, that entire dynasty basically hated the, uh, the, the generation afterwards. Um, and uh, and thanks for mentioning that uh, that quotation because it's a, it's an important moment I think where the where the young um, the young George um, has to live directly below his father's corpse who isn't buried because uh, George the Second so hated his son that he didn't bother around to to getting him uh, buried at Westminster Abbey until it smelt so much. I mean, there's really basically elemental stuff, isn't it? You know, uh, George III, I think, um, was a um, Renaissance prince. He was an enlightened monarch. But my God, his grandfather was a brutish old, um, you know, Teutonic boar. Hmm. You mentioned that George is an enlightened monarch. Uh, in the book, you write, I think, very perceptive, very perceptibly about the, the influence of Earl of Butte on George uh, as a younger man. Um, you describe Butte, I think, at one point in the book as being perceived by some of his enemies as a, a, a crypto-Jacobite Scottish Svengali, uh, which is another one of those wonderful turns of phrases uh, that we that we can enjoy. But do you think it's fair to describe George under Butte's influence as a Scottish Enlightenment king in the making? That's a very interesting stance to take. Yes, I think, uh, I mean, the Scottish Enlightenment, as we all know, predated the English Enlightenment, um, and it, uh, it, many of the, um, I mean, George III set up the Royal Academy, an awful lot of Scots involved in, in that, needless to say. Uh, his extraordinary books uh, collection, some 80,000 books. And, you know, when you and I work at the British uh, Library, that uh, fabulous collection of books in the centre of it uh, were all from uh, George III's library. And a lot are, um, are about Scotland and to do with Scotland. Um, he he uh, he promoted Scottish uh, architects and so on, and yet he never went there. Hmm. He never went there. He never went to Ireland. He never went to uh, to Wales, let alone America. Of course, he was Elector of Hanover. He never went to Hanover. It's quite extraordinary that somebody with such an extraordinary uh, uh, intellectual capacity and interest and curiosity, somebody who collected forty thousand topographical maps who had the largest collection in the world of scientific instruments wasn't interested in going anywhere north of Worcester <laughs> um, he, uh, he pretty much lived his entire life in the in the home counties and uh, and that is an extraordinary thing when one thinks of the, the fact that he is this sort of enlightened figure who, who, who loves to um, to know about places and people do you think knowledge was more important for him than experience that was precisely it. That was precisely. He he had such a belief in knowledge, such a, a trust in it, as it were. I think largely because of the way that the Earl of Butte um, brought him up, that um, 
he uh, if he got his mind around something, he didn't feel that he needed actually to see it. Now there are some um, exceptions to that where something is is quite spectacular. The classic example, of course, being um, the planet Uranus, which was named after him, George's star. It was um, originally called before it became uh, Uranus, and he loved going off to the observatory that his uh, his mother um, built for him at Kew and uh, and looking um, through these enormous micro um, uh, telescopes, one of which he actually spent an enormous amount of money, £4,000 in, in the 1760s, uh, to get the largest um, telescope in the world at that time, which Herschel um, used to, um, and Herschel's sister used to, um, to um, plot the planets. So, you know, <laughs> In a way, he, he, he went further than, than um, Hanover and, and Wales and, and Scotland. But, uh, but no, I think you're right. He, he did have a sort of um, profound uh, intellectual culture that meant that he didn't really need to, um, to have these experiences. I wonder, Andrew, if, if the telescope is in some sense a metaphor for George's experience of the world. If he couldn't go to places, he brought the places to him. And you know, if his experience of the Atlantic didn't go much beyond Weymouth, he was capable of bringing so-called noble savages into his court and, and treating them in a very respectful, honourable way. Yes, he, he loved meeting people from the South Seas. Uh, for, um, the, um, uh, the visit of the Native Americans um, was, an, was an important moment for his uh, court. Um, and uh, and he, he loved having intellectuals come to Windsor and, uh, and to, he was constantly talking to to painters and writers and so on. The great, um, I make a, a lot of, needless to say, the great moment where he meets uh, Dr. Johnson in his, in his library at Buckingham House and what they, and the, the sheer breadth of the things that they discuss is absolutely wonderful, you know. And so how this man can be called by um, Thomas Paine a royal brute, you know, and to, uh, to have these, uh, these attacks made on his intellect all the way through the 19th century, people were sneering at, um, at how uh, dim he was supposed to be, simply because he had this uh, expression, what, what, uh, that he would end sentences with. It was a, it was a nervous tick. You know, lots of people have those kind of things. It doesn't mean you're thick. Um, and he was able to appreciate uh, even um, his enemies. You know, I, the, the classic example being in March 1797, when he said of George Washington, he was the greatest character of the age. You know, that is an extraordinary thing to say about somebody who has, has completely defeated you and, and, and destroyed your empire in North America. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the incident where uh, the king pops down to the book room to meet Samuel Johnson is, is wonderfully described in the book. And you, you suggest, I think, uh, that one of the things they talk about is a possible literary history of England. Which Johnson, which may actually have influenced Johnson as he thought about future work that he might have carried out. Uh, yes, and also obviously the lives of the poets, um, which Johnson did write. Um, they seem to be tiptoeing around that concept as well in that conversation, don't they? Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of I think one of the most important contributions that the book makes to our understanding of George is a new diagnosis of his illness. And the suggestion that that illness manifested itself perhaps earlier than we might have realised in some of the, the earlier biographical work. How did you come to understand George's illness in a new way? And how does that observation shape the way that you describe his life? 
Well, I was frankly, I was shocked um, by the appalling uh, lack of intellectual rigour that was shown by Ida McAlpine and uh, her son, um, uh, Hunter, on the um, uh, on this question of porphyria. When one looks at it, and especially when one does what I've done, which is to get in touch with all the leading porphyria experts and various you know, presidents of the Royal Society and so on, um, none of them think it's porphyria. Uh, this was an idea of the, of the 1960s, and they effectively didn't give the doctors enough um, evidence for them to base a, a, a diagnosis. And actually, all the modern um, people uh, agree that it was bipolar disease that he was, um, uh, sorry, disorder that he was suffering from. George III was a manic depressive. He was not suffering from uh, porphyria. I go into this in some degree in my appendix and point out the various um, outrageous things that um, Hunter and McAlpine did. Um, I'm afraid most of it's rather disgusting because it's to do with feces and urine, you know, and the colours of them and so on. <laughs> so, um, so it won't, you know, don't, don't uh, read it before, um, before breakfast. But nonetheless, it does, uh, it does um, make it quite clear that this diagnosis that was picked up, of course, by Alan Bennett uh, for his madness of, uh, of King George, and, uh, and various other um, TV and, and plays and things. Um, it's completely wrong. Now, one of the things I think that one of the great strengths of the book is to contextualise George's life politically. He's a very hands-on monarch, isn't he? He takes his constitutional role extremely seriously. But what is it that drives his commitment to rule well? Well, he, um, he loves the British constitution, understandably, because it gives the king you know, large powers. It's not true, though, as the Whig historians always try to make out in the 19th century and some really into the 20th century as well, that he was trying to extend his powers. Uh, he wasn't a slight bit interested in doing that. He had pretty extensive powers anyhow. Um, I think he, the, the role of his father, his dead father, is quite important here. His father was a um, true believer in the idea of the Patriot King, which was something Lord, um, Lord Bolingbroke had um, put forward in the late 1730s, in which he, he very much believed in, that there was a, um, a way in which the monarch could rise above politics and uh, specifically rise above party politics and try to get governments um, to be truly national governments, naturally coalition governments, you know, of the best people on both sides of the, um, of the house, as it were. And, um, and that was something he tried to do his entire life. He was not going to be stuck by the Whigs um, into just having Whig oligarch governments that had, that had effectively ruled Britain ever since the Great Revolution 80 years before. And uh, so this is what led to clash after clash, you know, with the um, with the Rockingamite Whigs and Edmund Burke and uh, and all the other various types of Whigs, right the way up to Grenville, um, that uh, that happened again and again throughout his reign. He, he did believe that, you know, if a if a Tory was going to make a better minister, then he ought to be appointed a minister and not prevented from doing so simply because he was a Tory. Mm. I think actually, funny enough, in you know, in, in modern in modern um, parliaments, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, reaching across the aisle and trying to get the best people, that's not the same as being bipartisan. It doesn't mean you've got to sort of water down everything um, to try to go for the centre. It's just a question of trying to go for the best. Mm. 
Well, you mentioned just a moment or two, Andrew, uh, ago, you mentioned the Whig historians. There's a fascinating quotation here on page 133, uh, and this is in relation to your very provocative discussion of the American Revolution. It's ironic, you say, that Whig historians attacked George for trying to subvert the British Constitution, when in fact it was his unshakable respect for it that helped him lose America. What do you mean by that fascinating statement? Well, yes, um, there were a large number of, um, right at the beginning of the um, of the American Revolution, there were a lot of people, uh, American founding fathers, who thought that it might be possible to, at least in the short term, to split the king from Parliament. And, um, and it was Parliament that they were opposed to because of taxation and so on, but they could uh, somehow keep the king involved in a, in a um, constitutional um, setup. He wasn't going to go along with that, of course. Uh, first of all, he recognised it for the sort of Trojan horse that it was. And secondly, um, he was so committed to the constitution that the idea of him doing something um, opposed by all his um, ministers and, uh, and cabinet and prime minister um, was uh, anathema to him. So, uh, so it actually, in a sense, it was his his love of the constitution that led him into um, into so much danger when it came to the mm. to the Americans. Mm. I think one of the aspects of George's personality that comes out most strongly in the book is his affability, his um, even his accessibility to his subjects wandering about, often without much <laughs> of an escort, having a chat yes. with people. Um, giving people the odd fiver, yeah. you know, if, if, if they're in difficult yes, circumstances exactly. and so yes, forth. Entirely on his, ent- sometimes entirely on his own. He'd wander off. I mean, this was not when he was mad. Let's make this clear. It wasn't because he was some sort of demented elderly man who, who, who sort of managed to escape from his own castle. It was completely different from that. He, would, he enjoyed meeting the, um, you know, his subjects. He, didn't, he, he did it incognito. And he used to dress like an ordinary country gentleman in many ways. And of course, in the days before um, uh, television, people didn't really know. Uh, the best idea you'd have is, is from the from the stamps. Well, not even the stamps. The uh, the the coinage, you know, about what your king looked like, unless you'd actually seen him personally. And so there are lots of occasions where he would sort of stop and chat to uh, to a, um, a, a working person in the street, and um, uh, and then. He, he'd sort of slip them a guinea at the end of the conversation, which I, I think uh, would have been extremely pleasing had you been the working person, because that's about a week's wages. <laughs> I, I, I juxtapose that with the anecdote you tell of him providing a guinea for an experiment to do with vacuum and then pocketing the guinea at the end of the experiment. He was, he was, he was quite <laughs> yes. fastidious, wasn't he? He was, he was, he was very economically oh, yeah. aware. Yeah, he, Yes, he didn't. Um, uh, well, he, the problem was that he had this appalling son, Prinny, uh, later King George IV, who had um, compulsive buying disorder, was absolutely uh, incapable of uh, not spending money on, on fashionable things and tripperies. At one point, he's spending the same amount that we, the whole nation is spending on the Royal Navy. He's sending people off to China to buy, you know, chinoiseries. He's um, he's setting up enormous palaces all over the place, and and George III tries to rein him in, but because his son is opposed to him politically and a friend of the Whigs, the Whigs keep bailing him out. Come back, Butte. All is forgiven. <laughs> well, obviously George was someone who liked to have um, his subjects be accessible to him in different ways. 
How accessible is George to us? How much do we know the inner man, as it were, when we look at him? Well, an awful lot more now that we've had these 100,000 pages uh, made available. Um, They, uh, you you see his his, um, personal um, uh, good nature come through. You know, he he had a he had a nice uh, sense of humour. He enjoyed his uh, his family uh, life. He was personally extremely courageous as well. You see this in the six or seven assassination attempts that he uh, survived uh, during the Gordon riots. Um, one of the uh, one of the soldiers there said, "I am persuaded that the king does not know what fear is." Um, it's uh, his the way in which he responded to the invasion threats in 1779 and 1803. You know, and then and then immense courage right at the end when he does go mad for the fifth time, as I believe. Um, but every historian accepts four um, outs of, uh, of lunacy, where he's the helpless spectator of his oncoming mental collapse, which is uh, is a tremendously moving and, and, and awful thing. And uh, because he kept getting at moments of sanity. And so he was able to see what was happening to him. And uh, these sometimes happened when he was straightjacketed. Uh, which must have been a complete, um, completely horrific thing to have happened. Mm. And the final illustration in the book, Andrew, is that really brilliant um, 1827 portrait, isn't it? Posthumous portrait of George in that situation as an old and ill man. The, the last chapter in the book covers 11 years or so, doesn't it? But how much access do we have to George as a biographical subject during that period? Well, there's, there's not, not much need for it, frankly, because he was babbling incoherently for um, 10 years. He was, uh, he was blind. He had seen our dementia. Uh, he'd gone deaf. So, um, so really, uh, the, we have doctor's reports, of course. Very occasionally, he'll come out with a sentence about, about the American Revolution, but it won't make uh, any sense. So, frankly, you know, that last chapter, you can rather sort of zoom through it. So long as you capture, as I hope I have, the, the, the pathos and the bathos of, um, of, you know, the, of that last decade. Well, it's fascinating you mentioned there that, that part of his recollection was that of losing the American colonies. The title, what, 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 if I can ask a, just a, a humorous, cheeky question at the end, Andrew, what, one of the really interesting things about the book is the way that the American title is so provocative, The Last King of America. And that, of course... Uh, describing a narrative that that is itself quite a provocative account of the American Revolution. How do you think your American readers will respond to this? Oh, I think hopefully they'll respond to it very positively, because what I'm arguing is that actually America is a greater country than even it thinks it is, and Americans are greater people, because they have shown something that's truly exceptional. There are any number of times in history uh, where people have escaped from... um, from genuine tyranny. Um, the Israelites against the Egyptians, the Dutch escaping from the Spanish, the Greeks from the Turks, the Italians from the Austrians, and so on. It, it's, it's almost banal in history. What's really unusual, what's really exceptional, is what the Americans did, which was to um, insist on their um, independence and their sovereignty from someone who was not a tyrant. Um, you know, a tyrant under... Uh, we mentioned Samuel Johnson earlier. A tyrant... Is an absolute monarch governing imperiously, or he's a cruel, despotic, and severe master? Well, George III very clearly wasn't either of those things. He didn't have troops in the streets, uh, except for for a short period in Boston, 
uh, towards the end. He didn't have um, people arrested. Uh, he didn't close newspapers. He didn't stop the Stamp Act conference from uh, Congress from taking place or the first or second continental conference didn't try to disrupt any of those. You know, the fact is that this man was not a tyrant. And the Americans still, rightly, because that was the correct state of their historical development at that time, um, insisted on their revolution. So I think that uh, with any luck, um, they'll appreciate that this is a tremendously pro-American book. I wonder if this will call for a revision to any famous musicals. <laughs> well, they won't want me to sing it. I can tell you, my, my, my singing voice is not so damn great. <laughs> well, Andrew, it's been great talking to you today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on next, what your next project might be? Yes, I've got a big um, uh, project at the moment. Uh, not that it's going to be a big book. It's only going to be about 180,000 words, but it's going to be a biography of Lord Northcliffe, the um, the great um, press baron, indeed press viscount that he was. Um, he uh, was the sort of British equivalent of William Randolph Hearst and, um, and Pulitzer. He was an absolute um, giant. He owned 40% of the British press at the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, and a hugely controversial figure in uh, in uh, Britain. He was he was you know either hated or or loved. So I'm really looking forward to getting to grips with him. Well, that sounds fascinating. A great project. Look forward to reading it in due course. Uh, Andrew Roberts has been great talking to you today. But your new book, George the Third: The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch, just published by Alan Lane. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Corbett. I'd really enjoyed it. And thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.